Hi, my name is Stephen Bryant, and I want to welcome you to episode 10 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. I want to thank the returning listeners, as well as welcome new listeners who are just discovering the podcast series. I also want to thank everyone who's written in with either words of support and encouragement or with questions or suggestions. So as we begin 2008, I thought it would be a good idea to answer a few questions I've received over the past several months, as well as to recap some of the key findings we've made, which will help us establish a foundation for things we're going to consider later in the year. So let's dive in and begin by looking at some of the emails I've received. Some have suggested that if I found a problem with Einstein's equations, this means we go back to the Newtonian equations for everything. Well, nothing could be further from the truth on that. The Newtonian equations will have a place and play a significant role in moving systems, but they simply don't apply to frequency and wavelength. And this is where the equations associated with the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems comes into play. And what I find interesting is that these equations produce even better predictive values than Einstein's equations. So let me say that again. The equations associated with the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems produces better predictive results for the Michelson-Morley experiment and for the Ives-Stilwell experiment than Einstein's equations. So what does better mean? In this case, better means that they produce predictions that are closer to the actual experimental results. And closer is objectively measured, meaning anyone can sit down with their calculator, subtract the actual result from the predicted result, and determine the amount of error. The error associated with the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems is smaller than the error associated with Einstein's special relativity equations. And this is extremely important because even if you don't accept that there's a problem in Einstein's derivation, which some listeners do not, as scientists, we are obligated to investigate those models that produce the best results. It's important to understand that I'm introducing a new model. Newton's equations will still play a role, but when you talk about frequency and wavelength, they don't apply, and that's where the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems comes into play. Some have emailed asking how my model explains the null result of the Michelson and Morley experiment. As I've said before, their result, as given in their paper, wasn't null. And it's unfortunate that a lot of college-level textbooks present it as a null result. That said, I'm in the process of writing a new paper and have found some interesting things. When you consider the Michelson-Morley experiment, you'll see that it consists of four parts. First, it has the experimenter's expected result. In this case, they expect it to find 30 kilometers per second. Second, they provide their actual raw data. I like this. Actually, a lot of modern papers don't include their raw data and simply share their conclusions. It's nice that Michelson and Morley give us their raw data. Third, they give us their mathematical model that's used to convert their raw data into an actual result. And fourth, they compare the computed actual result against their expected result to draw some conclusions. In their case, they concluded that the model proposed by Frenet did not hold. 
So let's look at how supporters of special relativity use the Michelson-Morley experiment, and let's compare that to how I'm using it. Supporters of special relativity say that they don't buy the expected result, that instead of 30 kilometers per second, that the answer should be zero kilometers per second. In other words, they reject the first pillar of the experiment. Then they go on to say that the resulting analysis should not have pursued produced five to seven kilometers per second as concluded by Michelson and Morley in their paper. So they've also rejected the second pillar of the experiment. And they say that the actual result is zero kilometers per second. And the reason that they give for this is called experimental error. In other words, they end up rejecting the third pillar of the experiment, which is the quality of the raw data. I find this interesting that special relativity supporters cite Michelson and Morley as one of their cornerstone experiments when, in effect, they've said that they reject everything about it. They don't agree with the expected result, they don't agree with the actual result, and they don't agree with the raw data. Now let's contrast that against my analysis. First of all, I keep the first pillar. The experimenters expected to find 30 kilometers per second, we keep that. Second. We keep the raw data. I don't reject it as experimental error. Third, I revise, but not reject, their computational model. The equations that's used to compute the actual result. I'm saying that if you account for things that we know about in the year 2008, things that they didn't know about 100 years ago, that we produce an actual result that's pretty close to 30 kilometers per second. And when we compare this actual result to the expected result, we draw new conclusions. So when you consider Michelson and Morley, you not only have to look at the analysis, but how people are interpreting the experiment. Do you disregard the expected result in the raw data to support your theory, or do you embrace the expected result in the raw data? One approach would have you disregard 23 turns of the measuring device, or 100% error. The other has you explain four of those turns as error. I say that, as scientists, we need to explore the model that gives us the best results, one that embraces, instead of rejects, the experimenter's expected result and actual raw data. Next, I've had several people write to tell me that I've mistakenly used x prime equals x minus vt in the derivation. I think what's happened here is that some people either haven't read Einstein's paper or have read through it pretty quickly. I have to admit that if you fall into one of those camps, you might not know that Einstein makes this statement. It's very easy to miss. And when he uses the equation again, he just says to replace x prime with its value. He doesn't give the equation. The reality is that this is one of the first statements that he gives us, so it's there. Just reread section three or take a look at the Storz presentation. I've highlighted it as one of the equations that Einstein gives us. A few others have written to tell me that it's okay for Einstein to replace the t in the tau equation with x prime divided by c minus v. They also say that if you do this, you get the right result. Basically, this group agrees that it's okay for Einstein to perform his algebraic substitution in the very specific order that we've defined that it works for, 
and that any other substitution order is wrong. So not only does this disagree with the rules of algebraic substitution, it ignores the fact that the very first statement that Einstein gives us is x prime equals x minus vt. So if you're going to replace t, you have to do it everywhere. You can't be selective and say that you're going to do it in one place, but then ignore it somewhere else. What I like about where we are today is that we're talking about problems with Einstein's theory in very specific terms. We are much more concrete. We now have mathematical evidence of a problem and a mathematical means of showing and illustrating the problem. And I know that not everyone agrees with this because, well, to them, Einstein's equations make sense. The fact is, Einstein's equations produce good results, much better than Newton's for a certain class of experiments. It does make sense. But this is where the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems comes in. These equations, at least for the Michelson and Morley style experiments and the I. Stilwell style experiments that I've looked at, produce better results than Einstein's equations. And I find this exciting because you don't have to agree that anything is wrong with Einstein at all. On some level, that point becomes secondary. It doesn't matter if you believe there's a mistake because again, if we're going to be good scientists, if we're going to be really good scientists, then we have to look and consider the equations that produce the best results. And while the explanations will be different than with special relativity, they will still make sense on a conceptual level. So now that I've answered a few questions, I want to recap three things that we've learned from the first nine episodes. We've shown a mathematical problem in Einstein's derivation. We've shown a conceptual problem at the core of special relativity. And we've offered a challenge to the accuracy of the Einstein-Lorenz equations. Equally important, we've introduced a model, the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems that appears to be a compelling alternative and doesn't have the same problems we've identified with special relativity. First, I want to recap the mathematical problem in Einstein's derivation. This is something we've discussed before in episode two of the podcast and in the Storrs presentation. And what we've done is to show that Einstein's xi equation is not mathematically consistent. This is objectively verifiable and doesn't require the introduction of new variables or concepts. All that's required to see the problem is an understanding of the rules of algebraic substitution. Now, to really understand the root cause of the problem requires an understanding of functions and namespaces, which is something we've covered in episode 8. And while you need to have this understanding in order to find the problem in the alternative derivations, all that's required to find the problem in Einstein's 1905 derivation is an understanding of algebra. Second, as we've discussed in the last show, there's a conceptual problem with special relativity. And that problem is that the equations are derived to represent lengths, not points. In every derivation that I've looked at, you can derive the y and z-axis transformations using a unidirectional assumption. That is, something starts at the origin and continues in one direction without changing course. This means that those transformations can apply to either lengths or points. However, the equations for the x-axis transformation can only be derived using a bidirectional assumption. This means 
that something travels for some length of time in one direction and then changes course to come back in the other direction. And in this case, you don't end up with a point, only a length. This is one of the most significant conceptual problems with special relativity because it means you can't talk about space-time points. The nice thing about this finding is that it is completely independent of the math problem we've previously discussed. In fact, even if you don't agree that there's a math problem, this conceptual problem stands on its own as a challenge to the validity of special relativity. Third, the equations for the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems seem to produce better mathematical predictions than Einstein's equations. And I think this is probably the most exciting finding today because it's, a, it's also objective and measurable. It's easy to look at the experimenter's expected result and to look at the actual results predict, predicted by the model. Then, it's just a matter of simple subtraction to find the amount of error. And when we do this, the model of complete and incomplete coordinate system produces results with smaller error than Einstein's equations. So while special relativity theory may give good results, this model seems to give equal or better results. And what's exciting about this is that it doesn't matter whether or not you believe Einstein got it right or he got it wrong. What's important is that we seriously consider any model that gives us a better way of predicting things. So Einstein's theory of, of special relativity has had a very successful run. But if we're to move forward, it's time for us to understand how to get back on track, which is something that I hope the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems does for us. So this brings us to the end of episode 10 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. I know that there's a lot of material in today's show. As always, I invite you to listen to the material until you're comfortable with it. And, of course, I invite you to ask questions and send me your feedback. As always, I'd like your help in spreading the word, so please tell others about the podcast. And I look forward to hearing from you all. I can be reached at email at RelativityChallenge.com. Today's music was provided by Black Lab from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. You'll find them at music.podshow.com. This show is copyright 2008 by Stephen Bryant and RelativityChallenge.com. As always, I hope you'll return again next time. So until then, be well.